The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Hey, good morning. For those of uh, you who are new, I'm Ron Young. I'm one of the ruling elders here at Jacob's Well. I'm not normally preaching. Um, Pastor Dan, who is sitting right there, is on vacation, so we're going to pretend he's not here until communion uh, time. I trust you had a good 4th of July. You all had a good 4th of July? Let me ask this question. What is the 4th of July celebrating? Someone answer me that, really. Independence. We signed the Declaration of Independence on July 4th, 1776. Let me ask this question. Did that happen at the beginning of the war for independence? Or at the end of the war for independence? Or somewhere in the middle? Anyone? Yeah, in the middle. For some reason, when I was a kid, I always thought that we started this fight, and then we won and signed the Declaration of Independence. And, and it took a while before I, it sunk in and I studied history. It's like, no, that, that's not what happened. And I think part of it is, is uh, our minds get uh, trained to good stories. Because doesn't a good story have conflict, and then once it's resolved, do they live happily ever after? And, it, and so in my mind, that must be how it went. The war must have happened, and we won, so we declared independence, and everyone lived happily ever after. How about this? When did the war win? Or when was the war won? When did it end? Anyone know that? No? That was our Constitution, or is that 87 or 89? No? Anyone? Yeah? No? Tom? Air Force Academy grad? No? <laughs> September 1783 was the official end of the war. 1783. The war started in 1775. It went on for about a year before we signed the Declaration of Independence, although there was a lot of conflict beforehand. And then you have all these extra years before it's finally resolved. And then, even then, we didn't live happily ever after. Things like the War of 1812 and and, and so forth and, you know, so on. I'm bringing this up because uh, a lot of times we forget that we as Christians are engaged in a spiritual battle. Um, Pastor Dan brought this up last week in, our, um, in the sermon on Jonah. He says, um, he, he quoted from Ephesians six ten through 12, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, that is, against people, but against rulers and against authorities, against cosmic powers, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's a spiritual battle going on, and it's important that we understand that and that we know it. We'd like to think that what happened is is that Jesus came and he died on the cross, and he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, and then, boom, we should all live happily ever after. Or for you personally, that you struggled, you kind of came to Christ, you, you understood your sin and the consequences of it, you, you felt convicted, you heard the call of God, you received Christ as your Savior, and, and now you've lived happily ever after. But, but it doesn't work that way, does it? Often, um, coming up to the point where you receive Christ as your Savior, or that, that God calls you to himself, it's in the midst of some sort of struggle. At some point, you've discovered that you cannot, you cannot live with the consequences of your own sin. 
And no matter what you've done, no matter what you've tried, it has failed. And it just makes things worse. And at some point, you realize you need a Savior, and you find Jesus. He is your Savior, and he saves you. And then what happens is, after maybe a little time of happy feelings, the war continues. In fact, sometimes the war rages even more after you've come to Christ. And it's important, one, that we know this so that we're on guard, even as Paul says, that we should be aware of the schemes of the devil. Other ways he puts it is the methods of the evil one. We need to be aware of these things and prepared. And second, and this is a big thing, and I wish this strongly for our church, is that we understand that a struggle is the normal part of a Christian life. That our struggles are a normal part of the Christian life. That we don't hide from them. That we don't pretend that everything's fine. That we understand that it is normal for us to wrestle with doubts, to wrestle with sin, temptation, our flesh, even as uh, Chad was praying in, in our prayers with depression, with other things that come along. It, it's a battle. It's a, it's a real fight. Now, just to make our, our eyes a little more open here, uh, that passage from Ephesians chapter 6 starts off, finally, be strong in the Lord. And then he goes on to talk about the armor that you can wear. This fight, this battle. What's the context of this? What comes right before the finally? I'm glad you asked. Paul talks to the Ephesian church first about submission one to another as the church. Then he goes on to talk about families. Wives submitting to their husbands, husbands loving their wives, children obeying their parents, slaves and their, their masters and masters with their slaves. It's in the context of the church and home. And for some reason, I think that we have this idea that the real fight is somewhere out there, right? That our struggle, the cosmic battle that's going on, that's raging, is something out there with the world. The main place that the fight is happening is in church and in your home. And we need to be aware of these things. We tend to be more prepared for the, to engage outside of our home and our church. But Paul specifically says this in the context of when he's giving instructions to his church and to family life. All right, now I guess I can start. Actually, before I start, a couple things. <clears throat> I was leaving for vacation when I figured out what I was going to do. Got a nice little outline together, left for vacation, came back. We had 4th of July and all this good kind of stuff. And as I'm working on my sermon, I'm going, I may have bit off more than I can chew here. So I want you to realize, one, is I'm not saying everything exhaustively about the spiritual warfare. This is going to be a pretty basic thing. So second, that means you'll probably have more questions than answers. So I'm really happy that Tracy Stahlsberg will be at Kavarna on Tuesday to an- or Wednesday to, when is it? Wednesday to answer all your questions. I'm teasing. If you do have questions about today's sermon, I'm very welcome. I'm very happy to talk to you about it. Give me a call, email me, whatever. We'll hang out. I like coffee. I might even show up on Wednesday too. Third, um, if you're new to Jacob's Well, Jacob's Well, when, when preaching, uh, we do expository preaching, which is usually verse by verse down and 
Pastor Dan is in the midst of, is way in the thick of Jonah, first four verses. Um, t- today is going to end up being more topical. That's not usual for Jacob's well. It's not usual for me. But as I was working on this, it became to be more topical. So just so you know, if you're new, this isn't normal. Our passage today is from Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 17. I believe it's found in page, what, 1034 in your red Bibles? I don't know if it's on there. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman, clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with the rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has gone down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he has been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help of the woman, and her mouth opened. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. We should do that more often. Now, many of these, um, this sounds familiar, and it ought to. This is a, a, a vision that John has explaining kind of the spiritual aspect of what's happening 
what's happening in to the church. The church is suffering great persecution. Bad things are happening. People are being martyred right and left. And John is given this vision, this sign of what's going on. Remember, by the way, just a little hermeneutical thing. Revelation means a revealing. It's revealing what's going on. Often what we do is we think it's a mystery and we've got to figure it out. What, what is this? But it's a revealing. Things are happening on, uh, to the church in John's time and maybe in the near future. And this is a revelation. It's showing to the people what's happening in the spiritual realms. There's a war happening. Jesus was, the, of course, the, the, the male child who was born. And he was lifted up to heaven. And he's lifted up and a war breaks out and Satan and his angels are cast to earth. The accusers of the accuser of the brothers has been cast out and he no longer has a place to accuse us before God, which is wonderful news, isn't it? It's wonderful news. He's not there. The bad thing is, is that now he is filled with great wrath and he's seeking to devour the church seeking to devour the church. And it's apparent in John's day, especially through those who are dying for their faith. I want to talk about this in a few, a few ways. First of all, I want to remind us that the war, this cosmic, this cosmic war, has already been won. Right? We have battles going on with us, and it's part of a cosmic battle that's already won. Uh, I'm reminded a lot of uh, studying World War II and the invasion of Normandy. Almost everyone who studies that says, well, when did we really win the war? Well, Normandy, D-Day. Once, once the Americans and the Allied forces stormed those beaches of Normandy and we took a foothold in Europe, it was just a matter of time before we won the war, correct? Of course, after that, there were still battles. The Battle of the Bulge, which we kind of lost, happened later. But it was the, the deciding victory. Jesus dies on the cross, ascends from the grave, rises from the grave, and, and then he ascends to heaven, and the Satan and his, his uh, minions are thrown out, and they no longer have access to the heavenly realm, the minions. <laughs> they no longer have that access. The war here, we have to understand, is a war between the creator, God, and a mere creature. Satan is just a creature. He was a created thing. He was an angel who rebelled against God. He wanted to be like God, and he, and he fell from that grace. He, he fell. But this is a rebellion that happens again where he's trying to take over this war that breaks out, and he is tossed aside. But Satan is a created being. He can only do things that God permits. And even though he's this great, horrible dragon, he's a terrible dragon with the, with the horns and the diadems and this great tail that sweeps the stars, we see in this vision that he is limited in his power. God, didn't, God could have said a word, wiped him out. What did he do instead? He sent another created being, Michael the archangel, to take care of him. And a mere other creature threw him down. Second, his tail might be big and he can cast a third of the stars. That's kind of representing the angels that fell with him a third. 
All throughout Revelation, when a third is used, it meant limited. It's big, but it's limited. Satan has great power, but his power is limited. He's a creature. One of God's own creatures cast him down. And this should give us hope. It also lets us know that Satan himself is not a god. He's not omniscient. He's not all-powerful. He can't do the things that God does. He has limited power. What is his main power? We see this in the passage too. Two things. He has the power to accuse or slander. And now that he can't do it to God, usually what he does is it to us. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. And second, the power of deception. He likes to lie. And he lies a lot. And his lies are good. His lies are usually half-truths, which I'll talk about a little bit. And they're lies that we want to hear. This is, this is the hard part. He's a deceiver. He's an accuser. Next, I want to let us know that that war was won on the cross. That battle continues. But that battle is continuing, and we need to realize this. It's for our soul. It is for our soul. It's not for kicks. Satan's not out there trying to devour us or to devour the church because, you know, he gets pleasure out of it. He hates what's happening. He knows his time is short. And he hates the church. He wants you damned if he can help it. If not, if you are called by God and one of his people, he wants to make sure that your life as a Christian is ineffectual. Peter warns us, he says, in 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He wants to devour us. Peter is not talking to non-Christians. He's not talking to people outside the church. He's talking to the church. The devil's out to, prowling around looking for someone to devour. I think it's our prayer that that person is not you. Amen? Well, if that's Satan's purpose in the battle, if, if Satan's purpose is to, to see that people are damned, or that people are ineffectual in their Christian life, what is God's purpose? What's God doing? Isn't that a great question? Well, God's purpose is for his people to be conformed to the image of his son. Let me say that again. God's purpose is for his people to be conformed to the image of his son. Romans 8, 28, 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Right? Called according to his If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you have put your faith in him, it is because God called you for a purpose, right? His purpose. Not yours. His purpose. What is that purpose? For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In this battle, right, you might ask, why doesn't God just end the battle now? Because his purposes are being carried out. Satan is wanting to damn people. Satan is wanting to get you as Christians to be ineffectual. God is wanting you to be conformed to the image of his son. That you become like Jesus. 
right? And so this is how the battle goes. Satan wants to deceive us. Satan wants to tell us lies. Say you lose your job. What's Satan telling you? It's unfair, right? It's your fault. You're hopeless. Your identity is wrapped up in that. Now what are you? You're nothing, right? Satan will use whatever he can to deceive you and trick you, to get you perhaps even angry at God. And may I just be uh, the first to say, I would be the first to admit that I've done that before, right? Let's be honest. Anyone angry with God before? Right? What? Chat, no? I was looking at you. Okay, good. We've all done it. Something goes on in our life, something bad's happened, something horrible's happened, and the first thing we do is we look at it from the lens of what? The lies we've been told. The lies that we've believed, right? That God's absent, or God did this to me in a, in a bad way. That, that something's wrong, that it's out of control. Now, we might call out to him and ask why, which is fine. There's there's one way of saying, why, God? You know, Jesus even called, why have you forsaken me? I think that's fine, as long as it's in a, in, a, in a sense of faith that we're actually seeking an answer from God and willing to do what God wants. But a lot of times it's us shaking our fist at him. Isn't that where Satan wants us? This is what Satan wants from us. You're in a predicament. Your things are going bad. Satan wants us not to look at the promises that God has or the purposes he has for you in that situation, which we know is he wants us to be conformed to the image of the Son. What's the one thing that would, would, would make it look like we were like Jesus in a tough situation? Ready for the answer? Faith. Am I right? I'm going to look at Pastor Dent, right? Faith. Jesus trusted his heavenly father. Jesus went through some horrible, horrible things. Right? I can't even imagine the things that he had gone through. And the one thing that shows him as really being the son of God is his faith. He believed God. He trusted his word. And he never wavered. As the author of Hebrews says, he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is who we should look at to say, this is what it means to be like him. So when I'm going through a a tough situation, what I should look at, what I should believe is not the lies from Satan, not what the world is telling me. It should be the promises of God. And my question should be, God, what is it that I am to learn? And how can I grow? How can I be like your son in this? This is the battle. This is the battle. Here, I'm going to... Uh, okay, this Tracy's going to answer this one on, on Wednesday. So, God's purpose for you is to be conformed to the image of his son. It's not for you to be happy. Is that, can I say that? Is that? All right, good. Because if you have a problem with that, you can talk to Tracy on Wednesday at Kavarna. 
He is not calling us to be happy. Of course, we understand there's this blessedness that comes from following him. We understand that ultimately when this Lord returns, everything will be made new. All rights will be made, or all wrongs will be made right, and it will be happy, and we'll live happily ever after, and that's in the future. But right now, the God's purpose for you is to be conformed to the image of the Son. And often, that takes suffering. The world says there's something wrong with suffering. The world tries everything to avoid suffering. God uses suffering to conform you to the image of his Son. It was, uh, I was reading the uh, uh, worship songs that um, Chad sent me as I sent him my, this is my outline, he sent me the songs. I wanted to talk about the example of how uh, uh, Satan accuses I was going to use Job. I changed my mind. Um, I'm going to use Zechariah, one, because no one's ever heard of the book of Zechariah. But two, we, we talked about the what do we have to offer to God, right? It's, we have nothing but filthy rags. L- listen, listen to this encounter from Zechariah chapter 3. Um, Zechariah is a prophet. He's having visions of, of, of different things. And here we go in chapter 3. He says, And then he, God, showed me Joshua the high priest, now, Joshua is the high priest after the exile, after the, uh, Israel had been in Babylon, and they've come back. And, and they're rebuilding the temple. He showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan, standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua is standing before the angel, clothed in filthy garments. Okay, I'm not a Hebrew expert, but this word for filthy means it's covered with excrement. It's, it's, there's children here. It's covered with excrement. It automatically disqualifies Joshua from being a high priest or to be in the presence of God because he's, Filled with excrement. Then this is symbolic of all the sin of the nation of Israel and the sin personally of Joshua the high priest. And, and, this is, and this is what happens. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. Later on, in the same vision, we're told that, that this is a sign, and they're going to wait for the branch that is to come. And if we're familiar with you know, Isaiah's prophecies about the Messiah, we understand the branch is Jesus. Now think about this. This is before Christ came. And this is what Satan does. He goes around and he finds people and he accuses them. Here is Joshua who is, who is supposed to be the representative of the people of God to minister in his temples. And, and because Satan knows the word of God really, really well, he knows that he is disqualified for doing it. He takes in this vision, he's before God in his heavenly court and he's going to accuse him and go, look, he's guilty. And you know what? 
He was right. Joshua's guilty. The people are guilty. He's filthy. But God doesn't even let him accuse him. He's not even able to open his mouth. And God says to him, I rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. And then, in this gracious act, he removes all his filth and iniquity and gives him new vestments. It's just what we sang about just moments ago. Isn't that great? Because here's what's happened. The cross is coming. Jesus is in his last week before he dies. He says, he talks about the, the difficulties having, the suffering he's going through. And he says, my soul is troubled, but what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard it, and, said, and they said it thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He was approaching the cross. And he knew that when he was lifted up, Satan would be cast out. We understand from the book of Hebrews, for instance, that Jesus is now our high priest. He's our new Joshua. Jesus took on all our sin. He took on all our guilt. Everything. The punishment. Everything. Now he's in heaven as our high priest. All our sins are taken away. All of them are covered. And now Satan can't accuse us anymore. And Jesus himself sits at the right hand of the Heavenly Father. And what does he do? He intercedes for us. So now there's no accuser in front of God. There's his son at his right hand praying for us, interceding for us. Isn't that a great picture? When we went through the book of Colossians not too long ago, Dan read for us in the, uh, Colossians two thirteen through 15, he says, You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made alive together with him, that's Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them into open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. So in Christ, the law's demand, the law's the sin that, that comes from the, from the law, because that's all the law can do for us is point out our sin. It's not held against us anymore. And what Satan tries to do is to accuse you of your law-breaking, to accuse you so that you will doubt God's forgiveness. To accuse you to believe that it's not about God's grace, but about your righteousness. That somehow you have to merit for yourself some sort of enough good works so that God will, you know, accept you. Or, you know, toss you a bone here or there. Or perhaps earn a new job or a new whatever it might be. Or give you some sort of happiness. And that's not how it works at all. That's a lie from Satan. It's a lie from Satan. Everything we receive is a gift. It has been accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross and no one can take that away. So in your battle 
with whatever's going on. Look to Jesus. Right? Look to Jesus. He's at the right hand of the Father praying for you. Satan is not around there. The voice in your head, that's Satan, but ignore him. He's been defeated. It's not real. He's lying to you. He's lying to you. You have been forgiven. You have been forgiven. God wants you for his own. God wants you to be conformed to the image of his son if you'd let him. Believe and trust in that promise. So Satan is not up there. He can't, he can't accuse us before the Father. He accuses us to ourselves. He slanders us. He tries to get us to not believe. He deceives. He still deceives. He wants us. He wants us to mistrust. So he has two main. Our ra- battle rages from within and from without. I don't know if that's up there right now. But Satan deceives using two main weapons. I'm going to go through this really quick and then sum it up here. His external subtleties and his external coercion. External subtleties and external coercion. Okay? By this I mean what, God, what Satan does is he takes some truth and twists it. And he tells you those things that you'll believe that instead of what the true truth is. Right? It's, it's, it's very subtle. But, but see, he's got this scheme, okay? Again, his methods, his scheme. What he does is he, he tries to build this into cultures, right? Satan's power is limited. He's not omniscient. He can't be everywhere. He's got his demons, his minions, right? But there's only, only a third of the angels are his demons. They're, they can't be everywhere. So what his main scheme is is to, to have um, these lies set into a culture. And the culture begins to propagate those lies so that we all believe it. It becomes normal. Right? It becomes normal. His power also becomes coercive. If we were to read more in Revelation, it talks about the Antichrist, the beast of the sea, the beast of the land. Tracy Stahlsberg will be glad to talk about that. On, on I'm just kidding. It, and, and, and to just give it a gist without getting into to big detail here, is that Satan's scheme is to use secular power in order to enforce his lies. And religious organizations or things also to perpetuate that culture of lies. We see that in the second beast. And it happens over and over again throughout history. We see this. Political coercion, religious institutions that work together seamlessly to spread lies and to enforce them. In... in a, in the, the days of the apostles, you see the apostle Paul, um, it, it happened all the time. The, the martyrs of the, the Christians in the Roman empires. They, they, the Roman empire didn't care if they worshipped Jesus or not as long as they also worshipped the emperor. As long as they went around with their system. And they refused, so they killed them. Right? Easy. And we do that too. Why does it work so well? Why does Satan's scheme work so well? There's two reasons. We are susceptible to deception because, one, we are too internally corrupted. His lies tend to match perfectly with our own desires, right? The lies out there, are, you know, what, what life is about is your own happiness. It's about material wealth. It's about, you know, uh, sexual pleasure or it's about 
whatever. It's getting your way. It's being able to get off on weekends and, and just enjoy life and, and all these things. It has nothing to do with being conformed to the image of the sun. <clears throat> Can I be controversial? You guys all right with that? Yeah. Again, Tracy will answer all these questions. You're all right with controversy? Um, our system is like that in America. They don't care if you're Christians as long as you worship him in private. You can't believe that he's Lord. You're not allowed to. Right? You're not allowed to. We're, we're not allowed to teach children truth in public places. What's more basic than Jesus is Lord? Anything more basic than that? Isn't that the foundational principle of all truth and reality? Can't say it. We used to. Can't anymore. Why, do we, why did this change? How did it change? Well, I think for the most part, a lot of Christians didn't think that Jesus was Lord either. Nor did they want him to be Lord. When Jesus is Lord, there's a lot of things that we ought to be doing. We also like pleasure. We don't like people thinking that we're hate-filled people because we stand for truth. We're weak. That's the second reason it works, by the way. One, internally, we like what we're hearing. We like what it's selling, right? What's the purpose of life? Let me tell you what kids here hear constantly. Ready? Kids here, the secret to life is to get good grades so they can go to good college and become get a good job. Isn't that true? Or to be cynical, to become an individual economic unit to be taxed. <laughs> this, this is, what, what kind of life is that, right? To go through all that time, get in a bunch of debt so you can have a good job. Yay, I'm an employee. It, it's not what life is about. It's not what God has set up. It's not what Christ has conquered sin and death and the devil for so that you can simply have a job and, you know, compete with China, I guess. I don't know. But that's how things are set up. And you know it's true, isn't it? But we're, we are supposed to obey Christ. We are supposed to believe him. So what are our weapons? I gave, I'm giving three today. There's all sorts of ones. Our weapons to fight first is God's written word. God's written word. Um, one of the big things that my parents made me memorize from the very earliest time was Psalm 119.11. Psalm 119.11. I've hidden... Okay, I'm doing... I'll go back to my King James time. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Right? I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you, God. It's so important that we know God's word It helps us to see what's false. To see what Satan is doing, we can see then that it's wrong and not follow it. People always use the counterfeit example. People are supposed to to discover counterfeit bills. What are they supposed to do? They look at real money all the time. Why? So they know what the true money looks like. That way when they have a counterfeit, no matter how good it is, they see that it's not true. That's what we should be doing as Christians. 
reading God's word, studying God's word, internalizing his word, memorizing his word, that we might not sin against God. We see that when Jesus was on earth and Satan came and tempted him, what did he do? What was his weapon? It is written, and he quoted scripture to the devil. If that's what Jesus does, what should we be doing? Second is the proclaimed word, the preached word. Paul writes to Titus, chapter 2, verse 11 through 15. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing, appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Titus was a pastor. This is what preaching is, right? Preaching. I didn't know Dan was going to be here today. But I wanted to say this. That's a hard task. God blessed me for, what, 14 years, I guess, where I preached Sunday after Sunday. It's a burden. I remember in seminary, they talked about um, how when you deliver a sermon, that's what you're supposed to deliver a sermon. They made it clear that it it has the, um, the language being used is giving birth. That week in and week out, you have labor pains as you're giving birth to this sermon. And it's hard work. I mean, labor, and I haven't had any kids, but it sure looks bad, right? But it's, it's this, this labor that works, and this, it, it's painful, it's difficult, and it's, right? And if you're doing your job, there are going to be people who are going to be offended. People are not going to like being rebuked or exhorted. People are not going to like the truth. It's a hard job. I'm glad I'm out of it. But I know it's a burden. I know it's a burden for you, Dan. And I, and, I, and I just want us to, this is one of the key weapons we have against Satan's schemes, is to come here and hear God's word, not just the written word, but it being proclaimed by our pastor. And I'd really encourage you guys to pray for him week in and week out. It is a difficult thing, and we need it. We need it. And I thank God for it. Second thing is God's people. So God's word is our first weapon. Our second one is God's people. First, just being gathered in worship. It's such an encouragement to come and to sing and to pray and to be together. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25 says, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love. And good words, works, not neglecting the meeting together as is the habit of some, but for encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Not neglecting to meet together. It's such a great thing. We have the story of Elijah who's out battling against the prophets of Baal. He was so depressed afterwards he wanted to die. Why? Because he thought he was alone. Then God showed him there are 6,000 in Israel who hadn't bent their knee to Baal. How cool is it to come together with 200 folks or so who are here to worship the Lord week in and week out? 
But second, I put down a band of brothers. I want to use the battle term. Anyone watched that show before? It looks interesting. I afterwards talked to Jeffrey. Yeah. Is it worth it? I want to. I want to see it. But the band of brothers—that there's this group of people battling. Understand they're battling together, and they watch each other's back. And and I think that's that's part of what the church is. When I was talking to Nathan, who's home from college, where he was just talking about being in churches where it just seems like everyone's just sitting there not doing anything. They're they're not. Doesn't seem like they're growing. It doesn't. It's hard. We need to be in places where you're encouraged, where you're where you're held accountable. Uh, Dan, over and over again, talks about being in places of spiritual intimacy that we can pray. I have an example, too, of the need for a band of brothers because of the, the, the sin in our hearts. It's so deep that sometimes we can't even notice it. I had, uh, about a year ago, I came in front of the congregation just to talk about uh, uh, being nominated for ruling elder. Um, you know, Wendy and I were undergoing bankruptcy and, and to talk about it, and just so you guys were aware I had one person who later came and talked to me about my presentation. He thought the way I presented the congregation put me in the most positive light, more as a victim than as someone who was responsible for it. And so, um, so I wasn't taking responsibility for my actions or my consequences. So it was not my intent. It kind of came as a surprise. So um, we went together and we talked about it. And as he was talking me through this, I... Uh, I, I thought he was right. Like, yeah, I, I think you're right. I, you know, I apologized to him. I, I spoke to this about the, with the session meeting we've, we've done that. I apologized to you, too, if you felt like I'd, I'd uh, been deceptive in that. I didn't mean to. I am responsible. I mean, clearly, believe me, it's not fun. There were some extenuating circumstances, of course, but I really am responsible for these things, and I, and I appreciate your guys's care and, and, and forgiveness. But here's the thing. Whatever comes out of a man's heart, Scripture says, comes, or comes out of a man comes from their heart. So here I was with good intentions and what's coming out of me. It's my pride because that's what's in me. It's my pride, and I wasn't even aware of it. You know what it took? Someone who cared enough to talk to me about it. Now think about this. If I didn't think this person was on my side, if I did not think this person was part of the band of brothers who's trying to do its best for the purity of this church and, and, and for my own well-being, I would have been defensive. I probably was. I'll have to ask him if I was. I might have been a little defensive. But I would have been defensive, and I probably would have, uh, have dismissed it. Um, but that's not what happened. I understood that he is trying to correct me. Now think of this. What if, what if we all as a church decided that we were to be like that? That we, that we assume the best out of each other, that we're all in this together, that if I come up and I spoke about whatever sin or struggle that's going on with my life, when people talk to me about it, I really believe they're on my side. What a difference that would make in our congregation, wouldn't it? And in your own life, that we'd be free to talk about these things free to talk about these things. Our sin is such that we need other people to point these things out. Finally, God's presence, which probably could be number one. Not only did God cast out Christ through his ascension, is Satan cast out, he no longer accuses us, 
and that Jesus is now interceding on our behalf, here's the great thing. He has given to us his Holy Spirit. That he that is within you is greater than he that's in the world. Christ's own presence is here through his Holy Spirit and, and in you. And in you. Peter writes that his divine power, he has given us all we need for life and godliness through his divine power. It's in us. As, as Dan preached in Colossians, Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's in you. And finally, because he's in us, and because Christ sits at the right hand of, of the Father, our big weapon is prayer. And here we go. This is going to be the most comforting thing. You don't even, know how, even need to know how to pray. You don't even need to know how to pray. Even if you could just groan to God, the Holy Spirit can interpret that and bring it to God. Fumble around. It's okay. Just pray. So whatever's going on in your life right now, whatever battle you're facing right now, just bring it to God in prayer. Just tell Him, God, I'm struggling. I have no idea what's going on. I'm pretty ticked at you right now because I don't know what else to be. But please help. That's enough. Say it in faith. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Faith. So, to sum up, we're in a battle. It's serious. Please take these weapons. Understand that all things have been given to you. It's grace. It's been won already on the cross. God has called you to himself. His purpose is that you're conformed to the image of his son. And he's given all that we need for this life and for godliness. Everything. Just rely on him. Don't trust the lies of Satan. Believe in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for winning the battle for us. We are weak. We were dead even. And you called us to life. Thank you, Lord, for the promises that you have for us. Help us, Lord, to believe and not doubt. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.